And my name is Ross Anderson. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Alpine Church. And you know we've been um, in this series called Prodigal. This is our fourth and final week of the series that will give way, as, as Pastor Brian said, next week to Palm Sunday and then to Easter Sunday after that. And so in this series, we've been talking about how really gracious, how generous, how forgiving God is, how extravagant he is in his love toward rule breakers and rule keepers alike, right? And so what we want to do today to wrap it up is to consider a certain application, one particular application that many of us have had to deal with in our lives, and we're going to talk about how to love a prodigal. So a prodigal is that person that we care about, Maybe at one point in time they follow Jesus. At this point in time they're not. It might be a son or a daughter. It might be one of your siblings, someone in your family. It could be someone in your friend group or your small group. It could even be a spouse who at one point in time they're tracking with you in your faith and maybe even had an influence on your faith. But today they've adopted different values, different beliefs, different lifestyle behavior than, than, than those of us who follow Christ. And we care about them. And we're, we hurt and we want to see them come to know the full love of God again and, and the work to walk with Christ again in their life. It's challenging. So we're going to talk about that today. Let's pray about that and then we'll, we'll share some biblical ideas with you this morning. Father, thank you so much. Each one of us was once far from you, and you drew us near. Each one of us has come to experience your love and your your forgiveness, your grace in our lives. And if we haven't, Father, I pray for that person today, that that become real and apparent to them. So, Father, we, we think about the people that we love who have wandered away from you in some way or another, and we want to ask, Father, for you to reach out and for you to woo them and call them and, and nudge them back to you again and help us, help us to know how to relate to that person. Help us to know how we should treat them and how we should speak to them and, and how we can be used by you in their life. And, and help us, Father God, as we wrestle with our own feelings and desires that, that you'd help us by your Holy Spirit to, to know how to do what's right in their life, to know, to know how to connect, and, we, and it changes so that we're able to do that, Father, we pray, for your honor and for your glory in their life, as we care, and we, God, we care, and so we ask you to work in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So Sally and I have, between us, we have five kids, sort of, a, some of hers and some of mine, and um, we have several prodigals. At any given time, it's probably three, you know, um, in our life. Three of our adult children, all of our kids are, are grown up. And each one of them, I'm not going to go into all their stories. I'll, I'll give you a taste, a little bit of touch on some of the individual particulars later on to help us understand some principles in today's message. But each one of them has, is in a very different place, very different values that they've adopted. They're, on, they're not all the same at all. They've really come at, to, to the place in their life in different journeys and different things in their experiences that triggered you know, some of their doubts and questions and, and all the rest. And um, so believe me, we've talked a lot in, in our marriage over the years about how do we handle this? 
How do we, and you know, he's not like her. How, how do we do, how do we relate to them? How do we stay in relationship with them? We love them, we care about them. We want them to know God's best, but we will also want them to know that we love them and we don't want to uh, break relationship with them in our lives. And so we've, we've thought about that <clears throat> a lot. And sometimes we've uh, comforted and encouraged and supported them and helped them financially and been kind and so forth. And other times we feel like we've had to lay down the law, you know, and kind of be a little more stern. With, and, and, and yet they're still all far from God in their life. And so we're constantly thinking about, well, is there something about our approach that we need to reevaluate? And that's what I want to talk with you guys today about. Uh, To think about anything in your life that maybe the the scriptures, maybe the story of the prodigal son that we've been learning the last three weeks has some insight that will help you. And maybe there's some other principles that connect to that in the New Testament that we're going to talk about today that can help you to evaluate and, if necessary, reevaluate what it means to have that relationship with that person in your life. And so here's our first principle. Number one, it's not something that we really want to hear. But i got to start with it because it's so fundamental, and that is got to be honest about your own brokenness. You know, it's so easy when we have a prodigal in our life to see their brokenness to see their choices. Their choices often loom large. You know, their choices are often extreme and very different from our values. And so um, we we have to also look in the mirror. And Jesus gives us some insight here in Luke 6 about any time there's a relationship where where there's something wrong between two people. He says, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own eye? How can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye. Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. So we've all had something stuck in your eye, right? A little piece of sawdust or some kind of little splinter or dust or whatever, and it's like really annoying and aggravating and, 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 and trying to you know, get it out of there, you know? And Jesus uses that very common life situation to make a point about relationships, only he has this one dimension. He, makes, he exaggerates the story to really get our attention here, to really drive it home to us. So nobody really ever has a law, actual log in their eye, right? So he's using a, a hyperbole. I've, I've had a, a speck of sawdust, but, he, but, he, but a log. So he's saying, look, sometimes when you go to try to help somebody with a problem, you've got a bigger problem and you don't even realize it. How can you help them with their problem until you own up to your problem, right? You can't see past your own problem, maybe. And um, so that, that's, you know, that's, that's a pretty common situation. We all have that need to look in the mirror. So we got, you know, you got the prodigal and you've got, again, their situation might be so extreme, like the, the story of the prodigal son. Jesus tells this story, this, get, this kid runs off and does all kinds of this extreme behavior and, and stuff that's so different, so out of character for the family he grew up in, and, and it's, he paints a, a pretty dramatic story of that. And sometimes that's what, what we see, too, in our lives. Until we can look in the mirror, then we, we got to be careful about what we say. Now, now, Jesus isn't saying that you can never talk to that person 
or bring something up in their life. He's not saying that you have to get perfect before you have the right to speak in their life. That, that would never happen. I'll never be perfect. That would never happen. He's, he's just saying that you go into that conversation with some humility and with some self-awareness. And you've done a little bit of homework on, your, on yourself so that you don't come across as just from this, from this sort of moral superiority or from your high horse, you know, but, but you've taken the time to grapple with things that God might reveal to you and to grapple with your own humility, your own weakness, your own brokenness. You're coming to them, you know, in, in a position of just a greater humility. And so, <clears throat> and so, you know, none of us really likes to do that. We don't like to own up to our own stuff. A lot of us, it's something natural about, we get defensive about that. We're kind of like, we can be like that older brother in the story, right, who in his perspective, there was only one person who had a problem, and it wasn't him. It was that, that extravagant prodigal brother of his, and sometimes we can, we can be that way, but then when, we, when we're that way, we come across as condescending come across as know-it-all. We come across as holier-than-thou. And that doesn't open doors for a person's heart to be moved. That doesn't help them to trust me when the things that I have to say to them. But what can happen is that when I come to them with humility, maybe that does speak to their heart. Maybe they are able to see, oh, this is not so threatening. I could actually listen. And so, you know, the bigger picture on this is that when... I come humbly, willing to own my own brokenness, then in that relationship, I'm actually modeling the very nature of the gospel, right? What is God's good news message to us? It's not that, oh, you have to have it all together. It's not that you have to prove yourself worthy before I'll recognize you. No, the gospel, the good news is that, is that we're sinners. We can come to God as we are, but Jesus has paid the penalty, the price for our sin, and so he can change us. And not just at the very beginning when you like, get your ticket stamped for heaven, but every single day, owning up. Every single day the gospel applies, say, man, I'm weak, I'm broken. Jesus, I need you. So we never get on a high horse. We never get in that place of moral superiority. We're always interacting with humility in the lives of people. It's such an important starting point that we come into that relationship with humility and willing to own up to our own stuff in our own life. Now the second principle is also one that we don't necessarily want to hear. It's not easy to hear. And that is we need to be the one who can absorb the offense. Let me explain what I mean. Like when you're in a relationship with a prodigal or with just with a lot of different people, sometimes there's this, this, this vicious cycle that takes place where, you know, the, the prodigal, the person has rejected your values and they're maybe involved in some behaviors that are, you know them, you know that those things are, are self-destructive and dangerous and you care about them. And so, so you want to come down hard and lay down the law, right? And, and what happens is the prodigal responds to that by, by pushing back even harder, right? And so they even take it one step further and go even more extreme. And so my response, and I get frustrated with that, and so I just want to lay it on even thicker than before. And then what they do is then they take the next step, and it accelerates and escalates, and you have this downward spiral. Somebody's got to break the spiral, Somebody's got to break the cycle. 
Romans chapter 15 describes partly how that can work. That we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So it identifies two groups of people there. We who are strong, those who are weak, that's spiritually strong. The spiritually weak person is, is the one who's wandering away from God. Says we have an obligation to bear with their failings. In other words, to put it in terms of more common language that people use today, we say, you've got to be the adult in the situation. Right? You've got to be the bigger person, you could say. That's just, the Bible says you have an obligation to bear with their stuff, their attitude, their choices, their words, everything that, that, that it means for them to be where they're at in their life. That's, we just uh, can absorb, absorb that stuff from them. <clears throat> in fact, oh, he says, he says we want to not please ourselves, but we want to act for their best interest. So when, for me, if I want to please myself, what I find myself tempted to do is to vent, is to like just, you know, uh, spew on them with all of my frustration. And I, what I want is to be vindicated and, and be proven I was right, see? But that doesn't necessarily for their best interest. So, so I have to be willing sometimes to absorb the offense. And, and the greatest example of this, if you think about it, is Jesus himself, right? When Jesus was beaten and flogged by the Roman soldiers. He didn't deserve that. When he went to the cross that same day and he, and he died on the cross, he was actually bearing our offense, right? He was paying the penalty for our sins against God. And he did it for our good. And so that, that kind of gives us the, the model. And what, what that might look like in practice then is just really being patient and gentle with those other offenses. Even when that person is intentionally trying to poke your buttons, right? And, and you can just feel that your ire is rising. You say, no, I'm going to stop back. I can absorb the offense. I can be the mature person in this relationship right now. Even when I've told them before what, where I stand, even if I've reminded them again and again. And so I know <clears throat> in our relationship, one thing that made it hard was... We have, we have a son who, um, he really has a lot of baggage about his mom. And going all the way back to high school, years and years ago, he's never resolved it, never forgiven, never let it go, never worked it through with any help or anything like that. And so sometimes he'll have a tendency, he was living with us for quite a while, but because he kind of, things were hard for him, we let him come live and and. If you said a certain thing or if you said it the wrong way, he could really go off on. He wouldn't go off on me. He would really go off on her in demeaning language and verbal violence and all the rest. And, you know, so she absorbed a lot of offense in, those in the time that he was living with us. But here's the, here's the bigger picture. That, that sometimes when we're willing to do that, that's what it takes to break that negative cycle to keep the relationship from getting worse and worse and worse and worse and to help maintain it, and maybe it can get better. And that's what it takes to create an environment that maybe the prodigal wants to come home to, whether it's in your friend group or whether it's in your family. If you think about the story of the prodigal son, when he'd hit bottom, bottom and spent all his money in the famine and you know he's working the worst job that there is available and he doesn't even have enough to eat, he's starving, 
he, he has a favorable memory of his home. He thinks favorably back to his home and his family. And that led him to the possibility that he said, oh, maybe there's some kind of place for me back there again. And so if your prodigal is a family member, then, then he's thinking about what's, what's the home environment? Is it welcoming? It, would, would that person face recrimination? Would they face hostility coming back? Or would they face welcome? You know, we saw in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, the culture of heaven is that heaven and the angels have heaven rejoice when a lost person is found. What's the culture of your home? Is it going to be a culture of judgment or of joy that invites that person to come back in? And so sometimes we just need to be the one who can absorb the offense, hoping that that creates opportunity for the future. Now, the third thing I want to show you is really in, in tension with that. You have these two principles that we kind of have to figure out where's the line between them? How do they work together? Because there seems to be a little bit of tension between number two and number three, because we want to in- encourage you that in your grace, in your generosity toward that person, in your extravagance, you don't want to enable their sin. Now, I know you're thinking already, some of you are thinking like, wait, wait a second, wait a second. How can I be gracious and generous and absorb the offense without communicating to them that I condone their sin? How can I be this kind of open and welcoming without making it feel like I'm just giving their permission or that, that what they've done doesn't really even matter? And that's the, that's the tension that we have to wrestle with because here's the other side of it in Galatians 6. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. So this is okay, there, there's people he characterizes as godly. That's not perfect, that's not have it all together, but you're walking, following Jesus. And then there's someone out here who is, he says, he says has um, been overcome by or fallen into some kind of sin. They've walked away from the path. And he says, look, we, we have to try to help them back. Now sometimes that means confrontation. It means I need to tell them the truth. But he says when that happens, there's a couple of guidelines. Number one, it has to be gentle and humble. Now here, here's the thing. It, a lot of times we, we don't even confront when we need to. That's one side, and the other side is when we do confront, we do it out of arrogance and anger. Somewhere there's a sweet spot in the middle we can confront with gentleness. And he says, also check your motive. The second thing is that your motive should be to help that person back onto the right path. A lot of times when I'm ready to do a confrontation, that's not my motive. My motive is to score some points or to get back at you for what you've done or, or whatever it might be. But So those are the things that guide us in our confrontation. But the bigger question remains is that, that sometimes then when I have to have that confrontation, at the same time I want to be gracious and gentle and welcoming, and, and how do those two go together? How do I, where's the line between you know, enabling sin versus being gracious? And I, ha- I have to tell you that I don't really know. There's no single cut and dried template that applies in every situation. There's no little three-point checklist because every relationship is complicated. Every human being is complicated. And I think of our own kids, each one of them, 
story is so unique and the formative experiences that went into their, their pathway that influenced them are so unique and so different and each of their personalities is so different and unique. In fact, my personality and my wife's personality are very unique and different and so we would handle it in a different way probably. And so this is where it becomes a matter of really of prayer and seeking godly guidance on this. As a spouse, you want to talk about it together. So, you know, Sally will lean one way, I'll lean the other way. Between the two of us, we kind of figure out something that might, work, might be right, you know? Or you talk about it in your small group and with godly people that you trust or with a mentor or a pastor. Or if necessary, you go to a Christian counselor to help you understand where's that boundary in my unique situation in this particular time and place. And so, for us, with, with that son I mentioned to you, you know, we, he, when he came to live with us, he was in pretty bad shape. He was pretty fragile. And so, um, you know, we wanted to just love on him and help him to see the love of God, help him to understand our love for him. And so we put up with a lot of garbage from him in those first couple of years as he was trying to figure out his life. And it took a long time because, you know, COVID hit right in the middle and he got laid off and he was just about to get on his feet and we had, he had to kind of reset and start over. And over time, we saw that, you know, he did get better, you know, as much as you can without Jesus. And to the point, of, to the end, of, at the end of it, when he moved out his last summer, um, he would blow up about to his mom, but, in a, you know, within a few minutes, he would initiate an apology. He'd come back up and he would, he grew that, that much that, you know, he was growing a lot. And, but we felt like we had to put up with a lot of garbage because of his fragility. And, it, and, and, and we didn't want to see him on the street. There was a good chance that he'd be on, living on the street if he didn't have a place to go. But when he did move out, I made a decision. I said, you know, whatever happens, he looks like he's going to be okay, he's got a good job, he's making things work, but whatever happens, one way or the other, he's not ever going to move back in. Because I can't put my wife through that again, what she's been through at his hands. So that's our attempt, maybe we got it right, maybe we got it wrong, I don't know, but that's our attempt to try to balance, you know, are we absorbing the, the offense versus not enabling his sin. That's how, that's how it's working out for us. Now here's number four. Number four is important too. You tra stop trying to control every outcome. You know, because when you have a prodigal, there's a lot to worry about. Now worry about the choices that they're making and what the outcome of those choices will be. What's the trajectory of their life path? I worry about them and, and, and who they are right now and what, what's going on. And I worry about our relationship. And, and there's so many things to fret about, and I've noticed, have you noticed this, that in life, most of us, when we are worried or we're anxious, our default strategy for dealing with that is often to, to try to control, like to control the situation, to control the person, you know, to make it, to try to exert some, to make it turn out the way we want it to turn out. And, and Jesus says, you know, that's not necessarily the, the right approach. He gives us this wisdom. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble's enough for today. And he speaks that in the context where just before that, he's talking about some of the typical kind of things that people worry about. 
you worry about our security and where the next meal is going to come from and, and, and all the rest. And in this context, when he says this, he has just got done saying, look, God's got that. If you belong to him, he's going to take care of those things. He's going to take care of those needs if you just pursue him first. And in the middle of that, of that passage, he compares it to people who don't know Jesus who are just stressing like crazy about this stuff and they're just going into a panic and just a, a flurry of activity trying to make their lives safe and secure and trying to do everything they can to make sure that everything adds up for them. He says, that's, that's no way to live. He says, you can live without worry. So <clears throat> that means... I don't have to try to control the things that I can't control and try to control another person. You know, God doesn't treat us that way, does he? God, God doesn't control our decisions. He woos us. He speaks to us. He might make us go through some tough things to get our attention, but he doesn't control. He doesn't force us to pursue him. And any time that we do try to control our kids, you know, or, or, or the prodigals in our life, that that's going to backfire. It's just going to backfire because we, we just can't. We don't have the power to do that. So here's a, one thing I thought of, you know, that may, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think here's an application of that, a one, one shape it takes. Let's say, you know, the prodigal in your life has gone astray, against, uh, f- very different maybe from your values and beliefs and stuff, and you've told them where, where you stand. They know where you stand, right? They know what, what you think is right and wrong. You've made that clear. Well, having done that, why do we feel this impulse to keep saying it over and over and over again? Why do we keep this impu- have this impulse that every time they're over, it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slip it in? Every time I'm going I'm to nudge again, I'm going to put that seed in there, I'm going to tell them, maybe even go so far as to nag them on a regular basis about their behavior. You know that's bad for you, you know, and all, what, all the things that we typically say. Or even on the extreme, what happens is sometimes we'll even, I, I've seen this happen a number of times where the, the, the family or the friends will feel like they need to just cut that person off. Well, sometimes you need to cut a person off if they're toxic and they're poisoning, you know, the relationships around them. But, but that's not always the case. Sometimes people will cut them off because I'm making a stand for my values. But you know what? You've already told them. They already know what, what your values are. They already know what you think. So why do we keep on doing that? I was thinking about that. I realized it's really a way to try to have control. It's really a way to try to pressure and coerce and manipulate that person to do it our way, as if that would really possibly work. And so, so I'm thinking, you know, maybe we just need to be quiet sometimes. Maybe we need to, once we've made ourselves clear that we need to back off and take our hands off the situation because we can't control anybody Anyway, right? And so really the flip side of this one, oh, before I go on to that, let me remember, that I remember this, you know, one of the things that helps me um, when I'm in a situation like that is to remember the famous serenity prayer. You, know, you understand this? This is not found in the Bible word for word, but it's based on some biblical principles where I stop and say, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, 
and the wisdom to know the difference. You know, God, I, I, need, I need you to deal with things I can't deal with. I need you to help me change things I can, to have the strength and the courage to do that. I need your wisdom to know the difference. And what I've discovered so often is that the things I cannot change, right on the top of the list are people. And the things I can change, right on the top of the list are all things about me. My attitude, my perspective, my words, my treatment, of, you know, my behavior. Those things, I, I can change those. We spend more time trying to change somebody else than being willing to change ourselves. And, you know, I need God's help. I need his biblical wisdom to know the difference. So the flip side, then, of this principle really is number five. It's just the, the other piece of it, and that is to pray that God would do whatever it takes. Why? Because God can do what I can't do. God can work in people's lives. I can't, I can't control. God is in control. And so Jesus, on his last night that he was with his disciples, He's going to go to the cross, and then he's going to, later on, he's going to leave them behind as he ascends back into heaven. And he says, don't worry about it. I know I have to leave. I know you're stressed out about that. But he says, in fact, it's best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. And if I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. So Jesus says, look, I'm going I'm to leave you with the Holy Spirit. Here's what his job description in the world is. He's going to convict of sin. In other words, the Holy Spirit can do what I can't do. I can't convict anybody of sin. I can't change anybody's heart or change anybody's basic underlying motivation. And, and whenever I try to do that, when I found, whenever I try to convict somebody of sin, it always backfires. It always creates defensiveness. And, and other negative things, because why? You know why? It's not in my job description. Now, the Holy Spirit can do that through my words and my actions if they're in sync with him. But it's, only, but it's only he who can actually do it. The Holy Spirit can do that through circumstances, like the young man in the prodigal son story, right? He, he hit bottom. Everything went bad. It was horrible. And, and finally, as bad as things were, it says he came to his senses, right? He kind of put two and two together. Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can bring him to his senses. Because you know, you've seen a lot of people who hit bottom and they go through the worst life circumstances at all and it doesn't turn them back to God. In fact, sometimes it makes them just more angry with God. So it takes the Holy Spirit who can bring that conviction of sin. He's the one who can bring change. So we've got to make some room for the Holy Spirit to work. Maybe that means take my hands off of it. You know, even Jesus made room for the Holy Spirit to work. He said, I'm going to go back to my Father. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to do what he does. I'm not going to be there anymore. The Holy Spirit will be there. So how much more then do we as moms and dads and siblings and, and, and friends and, and small group members and all the, how much more do we sometimes, we just need to make, let there be room for the Holy Spirit to work in that person's life. Okay. In fact, I was talking with somebody at the break um, and she was telling me about her prodigal and she says, oh, there was a time when, when he showed some interest in reading something about from the Bible. And so she, she was looking at her, like, her feed, 
her social media feed, and she realized, oh, I've just been sending him things from you version, Bible verses and everything, like, like multiple times a day, every day since he like, made that revelation. She says, oh, I need to make some space for the Holy Spirit to work. I can back off a little bit and trust him to do what only he can do. And so that's why really, for us, the main thing we can do is pray. That's not our last resort. That's our first recourse is prayer. And partly prayer for us so that we can be the kind of people who can create a welcoming environment. We can understand you know, when to draw the line and when to be gracious and when to, and when to confront. and all. We, we need help from the Holy Spirit to be able to navigate those things on our part, but certainly then praying for that prodigal for what only God can do in his or her life. Sally and I pray for our kids, our prodigals, on a very regular basis. We're praying for them all the time, very consistently. And sometimes we see hopeful things, sometimes we don't. So my daughter was living in, um, in Salt Lake City. I had a th- for at one point, I had a triplex down there. She was living in one unit and helping me manage the other units. And I, at that time, I was praying that God would bring some kind of Christians across her path. Because, you know, sometimes it has to be another voice than our voice. Right and, and, and the world my daughter lives in, there's just no Christian witness or presence in her world at all. It's a very secular bubble. So I'm praying, God, you know, you, only you can bring some Christians across her path. Well, one day, we had a vacancy in one of the units, and it rented it to three girls who had just graduated from college, found out they're all Christians. So God brings them living right next door to her. And then one day, I was down there doing some maintenance, and I look over across the fence, and there's a young pastor that I know. Pastor Nate, he's living right next door. I don't know when he moved in. And he goes, wait, wait, what are you doing? You know, I wish I could say that because of the influence of those four Christians in, in her immediate proximity that she came back to Jesus. She didn't. But those, I can't control that. There's no way in the world that I could have orchestrated people moving in next door who follow Jesus. There's no way that I could make any of that happen. It's a matter of prayer. So we just keep praying. We keep praying all the time for them, knowing that there's hope because of what God can do in their lives. And so then as we wrap it up, I want to encourage you with this one final verse um, that gives me hope. Paul says in Philippians Chapter 1, he says, I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So, you know, I've got to do my part, but I've got to know what my part is and what God's part is. So I want to be gracious. I want to do what I can to stay in relationship. I want to try to discern how to treat him or her in my life. But then I have to let God do what only God can do And God is able to bring the prodigal home. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that as each one of us has been far from you at one point or another, and you were so gracious to us, we pray for the people in our lives. God, we ask, God, we're thinking about them by name right now. And I'm, I'm thinking of the names of the prodigals in my life. Each one of us is. And Father, we're lifting them up to you by name right now, just silently. Suddenly, God, would you touch his heart? God, would you touch her heart? God, would you woo him back to you? God, would you draw her back to you? God, would you show him your love? God, would you show her 
the blessed, abundant life you have in store for her. And God, would you work in me that I could be the kind of person that you could use in his life, in her life. Father, we keep trusting you. You love them even more than I do, God, even more than we do. And so we ask you to do your work in Jesus' name. Amen.